With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. A, a special episode because we're in the middle of a Women's Ashes series that, that is reaching the boil. It's been on a slow simmer. Uh, it started off a little cold if you were looking for competitive tension. The temperature has increased. The simmer has increased. And now, before the second One Day International, which will be the second last match in the series, there is a moment. There is a moment where something very remarkable might be possible. Hello, Adam. Oh, hi, Jeff. Yeah, that, that's it. It feels like um, I, I wrote a piece uh, with Nat Siver about two months ago that went out in the ECB program. And my contention when talking to Nat was that there was genuine belief in that England dressing room that not only were they a better side than 2019, but the gap was narrower, that there was the direction of travel for the England women's side was was positive, having changed coach last year, you know, new voice in John Lewis, and that they'd had this extra layer of belief, young blood in the dressing room as well. And so it's played out. England weren't that good last year. I mean, they got beaten comfortably by India. It was a summer of transition. They didn't have Heather Knight. They didn't have Nat Siver for decent slabs of it. Um, they had Amy Jones captaining against India at the end of the summer, but they didn't make the Commonwealth Games final. They didn't win a medal there. And there was a sense that things weren't completely right, even if that was just a perception from the outside looking in. To turn it around this quickly, it's reminiscent of what they did in 2017 when they made the World Cup final and won the World Cup final, having in 2016 looked like they were at sixes and sevens a little bit at different points. So, um, yeah, I guess it's the nature of women's cricket that things can change quickly. And the fact that we've got it so perfectly set up with two games to play, can't ask for anything more. So our guest for this show, you'll know if you've read the title of the episode, so there's probably no point trying to hold back suspense. Just before we get to that, I also (laughs) want to mention the fact that we have our live show coming up on July 26th in London. So it's at the Phoenix, which is a pub in Soho, just next to Oxford Circus. So it's in it's as middle as middle can be in central London. Um, Stephen Finn is coming to be our guest, which is great. We did a, a live show with him in Adelaide a couple of years ago where he was a terrific guest. So he'll be making his UK final word live debut. And it's, it's all happening. We didn't actually know if this would be able to happen, Adam, because we were, you know, initially we were thinking it might be nice to do a couple. Uh, things got really difficult with the organisation thereof, just trying to make it happen while we've been in the middle of this absolute mess madhouse of what six test matches plus a few white ball games that we've done over the course of the last few weeks Um, but it is it is on it is going to happen and it will be on July 26. I'm glad it's worked out this way I think it's a feature not a flaw that we're doing one and not multiple shows we can and we can direct all our energy into a couple of hours on stage. With, as you say, Finney was a, a great guest in Adelaide a couple of years ago, and he's a, an ambassador for the Lord's Taverners, and we're putting this on in conjunction with them, and the stars aligned perfectly yeah. that um, we're able to have Finney not only sort of tell the story of his career, but in all probability, well, I say in all probability, that, that's, that's probably stretching it, but there's a decent chance we'll be heading into the final test of 
you know, the greatest Ashes series of our generation as far as the men are concerned. If if England get the job done next week at Old Trafford, that'll be the eve of the Oval Test. It'll be fever pitch and Finney will be great. The, and the venues are Belter as well. As it turns out, I'm going there later tonight for a, a, a cure, um, uh, the cure-themed indie night <laughs> at, at the very same <laughs> venue that we're going to be on stage on. I've been there lots of times over the years. In fact, quite a bit this year with Winnie taking her to a, a toddler's disco that takes place once a month on a Sunday afternoon. So I know that the Phoenix really well, lovely people. As far as tickets are concerned, uh, there's a full freight price, which is 30 quid, but 15 quid for our patrons. And we've had a, a surge in patron numbers over the, what, the last six weeks or something like that, Jeff, which yep. is really cool that that people have hopefully uh, realised that we're working our asses off on this show and um, and want to be part of it formally and involved with our Discord community and and what we can do as a little token, I suppose, of our appreciation is, is this discounted ticket. So you can come along and, and make the most of the night with Finney. We've been in competition for a long while now with James Anderson. We wanted to get more subscribers on the Patreon than he had wickets and we've finally gone past him. He he could still <laughs> make, take 16 or something uh, at Old Trafford this week. He might get us back. He's currently trailing by about 10. So the contest is alive between the final word and Anderson, TFWVJA. Yeah. Um, it, it's all coming to a head. <laughs> I, I like this. I mean, I'm just, as we're talking, so it's also the battle. I think we said with Jimmy that we wanted to overtake him and we wanted to beat him to 700. We are currently, as I speak, at 697. So no better time mm. than jumping on and hitting the link to join Patreon. And from there, it's pretty straightforward to get the discounted ticket. All the links that you need are in, are in the show notes for today's episode with Enid Bakewell. And I'm, I'm so glad you were able to stitch this up, Jeff, um, when I was away. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to attend the women's test, largely due to the fact that I was getting married um, the day after it. And it just wasn't logistically viable for me to do everything that I needed to do in my personal life and, and squeeze in a test between... Edgbaston and Lords, yep. but you were there and, and you saw the opportunity to talk to Enid, who's a great person. I met her in the past and uh, and you've been able to sit down with her for over half an hour. One of the all-time greats for England women's cricket. She's, I'm going to say, 82 now, I, I reckon. Still as bright and cheerful as ever. She was at every day of the women's test at Trent Bridge. She lives in the area, played county cricket for knots way back when, you know, through the, the 60s and into the 70s um, when her England career started getting up and running as well. And she's someone who has come up on story time for us so many times because mm. because she, she's just up there with the best to ever do it. If you, if you set your qualifications at 20 test innings, she's got the best test average and she's got the fifth best bowling average. So, so best, yeah. best batting average, fifth best bowling average across w- women's tests. Um, she's got a remarkable record, lots of round numbers as well, exactly 500 ODI runs, exactly 50 test wickets, that sort of thing. But, yeah, average mm. just under 60 with the bat uh, across her test career and 16.6 with the ball, extraordinary stuff. And she's one of the very, very few, I think there are four, Four, maybe maybe it's four in the men's and two in the women's who've taken ten wickets and made a hundred in the same test match. So uh, there's there's nothing that she didn't achieve in very limited opportunities in the sport. And better still, that Tan and Atenfa happens in her final test match. They talk about going out on top and, you know, it was instrumental to England winning the inaugural World Cup in 1973, making a century there in the final and a couple of wickets against Australia. You know, she was still going as a 41-year-old at the 1982 World Cup. She could have played international cricket in the early 60s, but she was pregnant and um, and wasn't selected. And, you know, her longevity is a, a huge part of it. So Sarah Berman, who's a great part of our final word community, has, has told me this story many times, the Melbourne Cricket Week, which is a beautiful 
beautiful festival that takes place up in, I guess it's in in the west of England, um, each summer, that Enid still plays in that, in her 80s each year. She was playing for Surrey until she was in her 50s and there's this great through line between Enid Bakewell playing for Surrey. In 1999, she played against Beth Morgan. Now, Morgan would go on to become uh, a world champion in 2009 for England. She hit the winning runs, I'm pretty sure, with Claire Taylor in the 2009 semi-final at the Oval, a famous victory for England there, which set up their chance to win the final because they beat Australia in the semi and knocked off New Zealand in the final. And, and Beth Morgan went all the way through until 2019 with Middlesex. And Beth Morgan played with Sophia Dunkley for a couple of years at the end. So if you group it up together from, you know, Enid Bakewell playing first at what we now call this day level over 60 years ago, and only one player separates her to Sophia Dunkley, who's yeah. still in her early 20s and, and a star for England these days. So I know we like to do that, that daisy chain between Wilfred Rhodes is always in there, um, James Anderson these days. Uh, Brian Close is another who often with the men you can group from you know, yep. who, who linked over each other for, for an entire career. Jack Hobbs as well. But Enid Bakewell is the glue that links all, all the women together across generations. And yeah, I'm, I'm so pleased that someone who, you know, Wisdom named as one of their five greatest players ever, MBE, ICC Hall of Fame. She's a true all-timer. And it would probably, I reckon you could probably get one more link to take her back to the 1934, the inaugural women's test match in totally. 34. Yeah. Uh, there'd, there'd have to be a way to, to link her back to Myrtle McLagan or, or Peggy Antonio or someone back there. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it, it was a, a true privilege to, to get to sit down with a legend of the game who was wandering about the pavilion, thanks to, to our listener Tom as well, who helped cue that up by monitoring Enid's movements and letting me know where she was going to be so that I could... <laughs> <laughs> Interceptor and, and um, ask her for this interview, which she was very happy to do. So this comes from the the final day of the women's test match after it was all over and the dust was settling um, when I got to sit down in the pavilion seats in front of the, the Trent Bridge Pavilion with Enid Bakewell. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is The Final Word with a very special guest, Enid Bakewell, joining the show today at your home ground, Trent Bridge. Um, the result didn't go your way on day five, but I think seeing a women's test match played on day five, we, we've had one five-day test before, but they didn't actually play on all five days because it rained. So this is the first time we've had play on all five days of a test match and, and you were here to see it. Oh, wow. I didn't know they'd played another five-day test before this one. I've been wanting them, but I want them to play three. I think that would be fairer to play three and then, or at least two. Yeah, I mean, particularly after we saw such a good contest in this one, you want to see what would happen when players need to back it up and they've had the experience of the first match and got the nerves out of the way and they can get into their stride. Yes, and they're used to playing test match cricket because you've got to really keep the ball on the ground. If you keep the ball on the ground, you never get out. That's wise advice. I think Bradman used to say that as well. So you, uh, uh, your, your stats weren't too far off, so you, you probably had a similar approach. Well, I think the thing is to look where the spacers are. Don't worry about where the fielders are. Look where the spacers are and aim to hit the ball in the spacers. So you, you grew up not too far from here, right? This is your, your local area. Take me back to, to, this, to your, your early life around Nottingham. I probably was about 12 miles from here and I lived in... My dad wanted to teach but he was one of eight boys and his mum adopted a girl as well because she wanted a girl. Um, but he, um, so he, he wasn't interested in cricket, but he, he encouraged me. And so I played on the street outside 
Uh, but once you lost, hit the ball over a uh, garden, they wouldn't give it back. <laughs> so we went into where there was a field where they, the, the miners, um, when they had a fortnight's holiday during the year, the horses would come up from the mine and they'd exercise on this field, which was wonderful. But of course we had to move from there. Plus the fact the boys that I played with wanted to hit the ball over into the Parsons garden, which was adjacent to it. And of course we got sent, they got the policeman came and sent us off. So we went and literally with head shears and scissors, we cut a square out. Um, well, it, it was length of a pitch really. Uh, so right. you don't let it bounce. And I think that was the secret of my success because you've got to get to the ball before it bounced. And so I went and hit it along the ground. It's fantastic. Oh, so yeah. you had to reach it on the low full toss and that made you yeah. develop your footwork? Definitely, yeah. Okay. Okay. And and then so and you started playing. You were playing county cricket by your teenage years. Yeah. What what did women's county cricket look like at that point in time? Well, it was quite competitive, and we used to go down to Birmingham and play Warwickshire down there, and they were good. Um, so it was it was really competitive, and of course each practice that we had at not uh, during the week, we'd pay so much for the nets that we had and then we'd also pay so much towards a tour the tour that was coming over international tour i'm always interested in in what is it about cricket that gets hold of people because it does get hold of people and and in this country especially you know some of the people in the crowd have chatted to over the last few days and that sort of thing it it really gets them it gets its hooks in deep but what was it about cricket that made you fall for it it was like um a, a physical game of chess really and I just loved just being one up and, and, and hitting runs and taking wickets. It's great. And your, I mean, your parents weren't mad into cricket at all. You got, you got them into it, I, I suppose. Was it, was it unusual at that, in that era to be a girl who was backed to go and play sport and to be competitive and be in teams? It was unusual, and of course I came from a mining village and I went to a grammar school until Maggie Thatcher closed it and it went to a private school. Um, but in fact, folk couldn't understand why a woman wanted an education. But I said, well, if I'm going to have children, I need to educate the children, and so I did. Uh, and they're all very bright, all three of them. <laughs> you, you, you married early, trained as a PE teacher. Was there ever conflict between working and being married? I know at that at that period in time a lot of women would stop working once they got married. Uh, well there was a bit with my husband who, who really didn't appreciate the fact that I worked uh, because he'd, he'd had a mother who literally waited on him hand and foot. She used to send her friends away, put an armchair for him to sit down when the chip train was coming in from Rolls Royce in Hocknell. Uh, and, and it's amazing. And when we'd go down on a Sunday and I'd think, oh, he wants to look, he wants to spend some time with his mum. No, because she was going to get the tea ready and it was his turn to get the tea ready on a Sunday. Uh, and she wouldn't let him even bring a chair in. But she'd say, no, that's woman's work. And I'm thinking, well, I do the gardening, I do the winter digging. That's, that's woman's work. And being down the school teaching the students was women's work as well. Indeed, indeed, yeah. yeah. And of course, when I'd put them to bed, I'd go out and I'd train on the pavement and I'd try and race a car two lampposts away and then I'd walk back, which was fartlecking, of course. Now I'd do it again, but one night I was a bit tired and there was a chap at the bus station opposite and he said, you were a bit slower then. <laughs> so I'd speed up. <laughs> 
So that was your training regime to, to go out and race traffic to try to keep Indeed. yourself fit. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's, that's innovation, I suppose. Um, you know, that's that's they do all this strength and conditioning stuff these days. They could just be racing cars. <laughs> well, no, I think it's more professional nowadays. Because in fact, once I got the baby in the pram, I used to run with the pram as well, and sometimes I let go of it, and that that wasn't that wasn't wise. So you were teaching at a girls' school, and from what no, I, I taught her to, uh, well, I taught at a girls' school to begin with, um, and then I taught at a mixed school, uh, and then of course when the children were on the way, I, I taught swimming right. uh, where they were in their junior school. What, what I heard was that you weren't allowed to teach cricket to the girls because that was unladylike, so you had to start a cricket club out of school hours so that the, the headmistress wouldn't have any say over it. They, well, it was funny because it was a woman PE advisor and I said, can I teach cricket in lesson times? And she said, no, not in lesson times, it's too unladylike. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I held a French chap called uh, Stephen Smith who, who helped me do a club after school, which was fine. Yeah. But in fact, down south, it was worse, near Hampstead. They got four pitchers. So I said, well, which, ones do the girl, which one do the girls play on? Oh, no, she said, the girls don't play. And I'm thinking, this is stupid. They do now. Yeah. In fact, oh. there was one bar at one place where, and we played there quite a, a strong game. Uh, and there was a sort of a yard line away from the bar. And women were never allowed to step over that line. You had to get the men to order the drink. I don't know whether that's changed. That may not have changed. <laughs> I, th I would like to think it has. There's, there's, a, yeah. there's a famous picture, I think, from Brisbane of a couple of women who, in the, in the 60s, who chained themselves to a table. They'd had cuffed their ankles to a table in, in the pub so that they couldn't be removed as a protest when, when women weren't allowed in the venues. Well, I once went, I can't remember what I wanted to say to somebody, but we had a, a miners' welfare, which was like a club for the men. And, of course, I went in to try and talk to somebody about something. Um, it may have been a family match, I can't remember now, but they said, oh, no, women aren't allowed in here. <laughs> so, 1963, there's a, there's a, a test tour that they're picking a team for. You don't get picked in that year. Did you, did you think you were a chance to get picked? Were you disappointed at not being in that side? 63, I think I was still at college. I went down to Dartford in, in Kent, which was very instrumental in my playing for England because the deputy head was a Mary Duggan who was a really quick bowler quick bowler and, a, and an opening bat and I once played in a game and I went and stood really close to her on the leg side and the slip fielder said to me if I were you I'd step further back <laughs> and I finished up on the boundary and I still missed a catch on the boundary <laughs> but she was a bit, and of course Ruth Westbrook who kept wicked and then uh, coached England she was there as well as a lecturer and of course Rachel Hayo Flint was in the third year when I was in the first year so we played in the hockey team and the cricket team as well. Right how did it work in in those days in terms of getting picked in terms of the organization the administration at the top of women's cricket who was picking the teams and how how did selected groups come together? They'd have a group of selectors uh, and they probably folk who'd been around for years. And of course, when Rachel tried to introduce people getting money, they weren't happy with that because some of them had been treasurers for 27 years and not accepted a penny for what they were doing. And in a way, you could see what they, they but she could see that the, the Aussies were about six years before we were paid. Um, and she, she, 
In fact, they dropped her from the captaincy. Whether it was because of that, I don't know. They never, we had a whole conference to debate why Rachel had been dropped. And we never got any resolution from it. Okay. It was so a waste of time. Administration was opaque then as it is now. I think the thing was that women who got careers couldn't see a why people with families and, and children w were being selected, mm. and why people needed to be paid because they a they could have they got enough money from their work, and they couldn't see why people needed paying to play cricket. Well, you were having to juggle family with playing because you, you didn't get picked in 1966 because you were six months pregnant at that point, so you... you, you I, did, I did play when I was about five months pregnant, yeah, and I even bowled. I believe that. I have no trouble believing that. But you, you had to wait until 1968, the 68-69, 60, uh, out to Australia and New Zealand before you, you finally break into that England team for the first time. I mean, what was that like? It was, it was a bit awe-inspiring because, A, I, my daughter was two and a half and, of course, my mum had lost a baby before me and she was 40 when I was born. So she was really looking forward to looking after Lorna uh, and so she looked after during the week and then my husband would look after them at the weekend. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to work out how you, you juggle this because you have, by the time you start playing for England, like you say, you've already got one toddler and then... You're pregnant with the next kid and you're playing until five or six months pregnant and then by the time you, you sort of, by the early 70s you've got three young ones running around and then you're playing in a World Cup and all the rest of it. Um, and particularly you're in an era where women are expected to do all the work and all of the domestic stuff and, and you're trying to manage your fitness and all of these things at the same time when there was no support. I mean these days there's really good maternity leave support and um, training support and so on for female athletes who want to have kids at, at the same time. You, I imagine, were having to work it all out by yourself. I was lucky in that the headmaster at the school where my children were, uh, and they had a very, very good infant teacher who never spent any uh, breaks in the staff room. She always was hearing children read. And in fact, she went on, if she went on a course, I would then go and teach that class while she was uh, away. Uh, and of course, being in the, in the swimming pool area was uh, uh, adjacent to the school. So, and, and it was so job satisfying, right. you know, when the children's eyes would like, I could yeah. do it, I could do it, what do I do next? Uh, and you, you, you were saving lives. I mean, one of them who did die quite young, uh, she went and she fell in some water somewhere and her parents were so worried, but because she learnt to swim in mm. the pool, she, she could swim and she was okay, she saved herself. So 1968, you're out in Australia, you make your test debut at Adelaide, you make 100 on debut, 37 in the second innings, couple of runouts and a catch um, in the one innings where England are in the field. Tell me about that experience. Well, well, it was phenomenal, uh, uh, but of course the Aussies pl always played for a draw. I mean, we, the first pet test that we played, we declared Rachel declared at tea time on the first day, and the Aussies declared lunchtime on the third day. <laughs> So we drew all three, but she managed to uh, con the New Zealanders. She kept the quick bowlers on in the last test that we played against them. Uh, and so they, they kept going for the runs. And then, of course, she brought the spinners on and got the wickets in. Right. 
So that, that first series, three draws in the series, they're all three-day test matches. I, I sense from what you said that it was pretty frustrating to only have three days. Was there, was there any sort of conversation about trying to shift that, trying to play over a longer period of time? I don't think there was any at that time. I mean, Rachel may have tried to discuss it, but I don't think so. In fact, one, when we were playing, I think it was Melbourne, They'd had some tanks or something on this cricket pitch the day before we were supposed to play. You can imagine what damage they did. <laughs> so you had you, three more tests in New Zealand. You make a couple more hundreds there. I mean, it's a hell of a series uh, across the tour games and so on. More than a thousand runs and more than a hundred wickets for you across the series. Y you must have come home again walking on air. Oh, I was. I love. I absolutely love New Zealand. I want to go out and live in New Zealand. They were so welcoming, um, and and I've been there several times. But of course, my husband worked for Rolls Royce, and he got one chap who'd gone out there and taken his wife. And of course, she got homesick, so they'd come back. Yeah, and I'd have had to come back to look after my dad anyway after my mum died. I found a, a little snippet from a paper around that time which said, uh, on her return to England, Enid was accorded a civic reception by the Nottingham County Council and presented with an engraved silver salver bearing the record of her achievements, an engraved silver cup, and Kirkby Council made her the gift of a dressing table set. Do you remember any of this? Do you still have a yeah, dressing table set? Well, I do somewhere. I don't, I, don't, I don't use it, but I don't have a dressing table, quite honestly. <laughs> It's, it's just it's a different it's it's such a different time for you know for someone like me to try to get my head around that you've had this wildly successful tour and then you're presented with a silver cup it's it's very polite well what i do i take these souvenirs to, to when i give a talk to somewhere and try and inspire but it's usually to elderly folk not to young <laughs> kids but i do have a go sometimes when i come down here and the little ones are having a go i'll bowl the ball to them and, and try and encourage them to play so you've had your first tour in 68, 69, and then you don't, England don't play another test match until 1976. It was, I mean, was that frustrating that there was so little um, possibility to play for England or did you just accept that that was the way it was at, yeah, at that time? That was the way it was at that time, yeah, yeah, yeah. You had to wait quite a long time because they got to raise the funds, you see. We hadn't got anything from the ECB. Right, so because it was a separate... Um, women's cricket board. Entity. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was the case up until 2005, I think, that, that women's cricket was being run separately. So there'd be fundraising efforts to be able to afford to stage a tour. I used to come down to meetings down here. I was yeah. on the board and I used to bring boxes of chocolate and I used to spend, that sell four bars for a pound. And the men used to say, my wife doesn't believe I've been to the meeting if I don't take some chocolate back. <laughs> But they were very good here, actually. We had uh, the nets at the back, and we were allowed to coach in there. There were three nets, uh, and then uh, they looked after us really well. What you did get to do between those test dates is 1973. You get to play in the first World Cup as well, um, something that can never be changed, and you make 100 on one-day debut. There's only one other player, Abid Ali, a Pakistani batsman, who made 100 on test debut and one-day debut. You're, that's it, you, you and him. These sort of records, are you, are you aware of these things? Or no, did... no, no. They, they, they didn't worry me as long as we won. And I am a bit competitive, as you can probably tell. And in fact, my eldest daughter would bet on a raindrop coming down her windows. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> well, you did win in the final and you made another 100 in the final against Australia. Um, that must have been just, I, I can't imagine how satisfying that must have been. Oh, it's phenomenal. It was a 60-over game, of course. Yes, and my dad was there, so I remember my dad with a, a rug over his arm uh, making the most of it, because of course he would do the Sunday meal while I was down here coaching and, and practicing. He'd be, he'd be cooking the Sunday lunch, and of course as his eyesight went into his 90s, my son would be there keeping an eye that the, the gas was okay. Um, 1976 you play a one day in a test series against Australia and then 1979 against the West Indies that's your last test series but your very last match in that series that's the match with the Enid Bakewell number now on, on our show we talk quite a bit about Charles Bannerman in the first test match who made the highest percentage of the runs in a completed innings well, you bettered him in that test match. You made 112 out of 164. That's 68.29% of the team's runs in a completed innings. That's a record in all test cricket that you hold as well. Well, it was amazing because the lady who was there on that day came yesterday and I saw her. Right. And she, she speaks four languages. Amazing woman, Kathy Mowat. Uh, but she'd sit reading a newspaper while she was waiting to go into bat. So A, she didn't know where the fielders were and what the ball was doing or anything. And so I said to a lady called Kate, Bre uh, uh, Kate, who was in with me, and I said, please do not get out. Kathy's in next, so please stay. And she did. So I've called a partner ever since. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you get much coverage or attention for, I mean, some of your feats on the field are extraordinary things. Was there, was there much coverage at the time? Uh, um, um, well, Rachel, Rachel wrote because she'd been to the same college as me, but she fooled around, and so the, one of the lecturers, the English lecturer, wouldn't give her the, the qualification to leave on full pay, so she finished on half pay. So, of course, Rachel had to work for the press, so she'd come in, and when I'd shared a room with her, she'd, she'd come in and she'd have a shower, and then she'd get through on the, uh, to the uh, home to tell them how tell the family how she was. Then she'd get through to the press, and then she'd get the ukulele out, and she said, it's not the cricket that wears me out, it's entertaining the troops. And she even went and played the ukulele around Lords, <laughs> the outside of Lords, to let people know that women played cricket. We'd have to go round and play men's teams round the, uh, round, all round, Scotland and, and Wales and, and Devon. I've never heard of the ukulele being used as a marketing tool for cricket before. <laughs> well, she was very good with it. She was amazing. Amazing with everything. Because she supported Wolverhampton Wanderers as well as the cricket. But she got to know, um, what's his name? Um, Sir, I've forgotten his name now. Uh, Jack Haywood. Mm. Amazing character. She expected him to be drinking champagne and, and caviar. He was drinking beer, wasn't he? And, um, and cheese sandwich. <laughs> You, you got one more World Cup in 1982. You were 42 years of age by then. Your, your bowling was more the stronger suit than the batting by that point. Did you, did you play on so late because you hadn't got to start? I mean, you didn't get to play for England until you were 28. So I imagine that that late start might have encouraged you to, to keep going later. Oh, well, I, I still play now at 82. So, I mean, I was young uh, playing that one then. Yeah, young, young in, uh, in, in broader overall terms, but in, in rocking up for your country at 42 years of age, you know, James Anderson's pretty close to doing that, but it takes some doing. Yeah, and he's a quick bowler. I'm only a spin bowler. 
So a dozen test matches from 68 to 79. Your test batting average 59.88. If, if your qualification is 20 innings, that's the best test average in women's tests. Um, and your bowling average is fifth all time. So it's a pretty handy combination to have to be top of one and fifth on the other. Well, the ones, somebody used to say, the ones I couldn't bowl at, I could talk out. <laughs> <laughs> Did you talk them into getting out? No, I didn't, no. I do drop some crummy jokes. In fact, I jokingly say that they, they used to say to me, go out there and stay out there because we can't cope with your jokes back here. <laughs> and then well, I, I was pleased to see during this test match we've just watched, I mean, you made 100 and took 10 wickets in a match, uh, which is a very rare feat, but there were, I think, 10, 10 wicket matches in women's tests before this one, and now two more players have jumped into the, the pool with you. Sophie amazing. Eccleston and yeah. Ash Gardner have, have both done the same. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's amazing. Wonderful. I mean, the interesting the, the amount of spin that they've used in this game. What what did you make of it when you were sort of you know, tactically and watching the bowling and so on? I mean, you've been you've had your eye on the field for a very long time. Yes, well, it, it was very well thought out. They they got them it, trying to contain them, them, and of course, then the the thing is that when the one day that they use lofted shots. And they use the feet, and then of course they get stumped, don't they? Because quite a number of them have in this game. Um, it, it's difficult, isn't it? You were in. Remind me, you were touring Australia again. Was it last year that you were last there? Yes. Yep. We went. Was it November time? Only for a fortnight, though. Australia. One week in Australia, and then a week in um, New Zealand. The East Anglian Veteran Ladies Club. Is that the one? That's the one. There we are, look. <laughs> so you've still, you've, for, for those listening on audio, I've still got the badge on the polo shirt there. Um, and, and, you, and you still managed to get some bowling. I, I'm told that your arm doesn't work so no, well I'm with arthritis. but underarm now, yeah, yeah. But, um, but you cleared that ahead of time to, to make sure it wasn't a scandal. Well, and the other problem I had was two, two uh, false knees, look. So that, that didn't help. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I tried to keep the... the, the team spirit going that was that was one of the roles I had you're the you're the uh, the motivator yeah where are you playing these days uh, anywhere that anybody asks me uh, in fact I could have had a game yesterday I think for uh, for Kaythorpe um, but I came here to watch do you hope to get out to Australia again might that oh, be on the radar so yeah yeah and New Zealand as I say, I wanted to go and live in New Zealand. Maybe you can. Maybe maybe moving to New Zealand is a dream still ahead of you. Well, I'd have to leave my family behind. I've got a 12-year-old grandson. He's the only one I'm going to have. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll, I want to watch him grow up as well. Yeah. Maybe maybe he'll want to move to New Zealand too. Well, he might. You never know. Yeah, he's a very bright lad. Enid Bakewell, your, your enthusiasm for the game is, is inspiring. Um, it, it warms my heart to see it. And um, thanks so much for taking some time to chat to us on The Final Word. It's a pleasure. It's great to meet you and talk to you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin. Final word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. Thank you to Enid Bakewell for um, offering up her time with you uh, in a week that would have been a lot to her, um, a test match in, in Knotts where she grew up and, and all the rest of it. So, yes, it's an interview we've wanted to do for a long, long time, Jeff. She's been on that spreadsheet of ours of guests we wish to get on the show and um, you got her. Yes, yeah. It's, I'm, I was delighted, you know, the, the 
smile on my face when I got to ring you up and say, guess what, um, yeah. it was, was, was something to be seen. So thanks to Enid for making the time uh, and for, for being such a cheerful guest and for everything she's done for the game across the years. And if you want to get involved with what we're doing, that's an easy thing to do. You go to patreon.com slash the final word. That's where our listener community is. Everybody's hanging out there talking about the cricket, arranging their meetups, swapping photos of their pets, doing all of the nice, cheerful, wholesome things <laughs> that happen in final word land. Um, and you can also get those discounted tickets to the live show if you're able to come to London on the evening of July 26th. Become our 700th patron. That can be you. If you, if you hear this now, think, yeah. you know what, I want to be number 700. I want to be Andrew Strauss to Shane Wall. I want to be the That's Sam Billings want. of Caps um, because, <laughs> because of the weird That's thing right. with Alan Jones and Cap 696. I want yes. to be Sam Billings. I want to be Sam Billings, who's been a guest on the show, of yes. course. Uh, you can do that right now and it will get you a half-price ticket to our live show on the 26th of July at the Phoenix in Soho. Could not be any more the guts of the city, about 200 metres from Oxford Circus on, on the eve of the final men's Ashes Test match. All right, that's enough from us. This has been The Final Word. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for all your support through a very busy summer for us. Can't wait to do it all again next week when we are off to Manchester. Bye for now. Bye. I had to go about